1: Hello and welcome to The Credit Edge, a weekly markets podcast. My name is James Crombie. I'm a senior editor at Bloomberg. Today's guests are Reshmi Basu, who covers distressed debt for Bloomberg News in New York. We're delighted to have you on the show.
2: James, thank you so much for having me here. Um, I love your podcast.
1: Thank you. We're also very pleased to welcome Himanshu Bakshi, who covers banks for Bloomberg Intelligence, also in New York.
3: Hi, James. Thank you for having me today.
1: We'll be coming right back to Himanshu a little bit later in the show. But before we do, Reshmi Basu with Bloomberg News, you cover distressed debt in the US. A lot of companies are running into trouble at the moment with interest rates rising and the economy slowing, potentially tipping into a recession, maybe a hard landing, stagflation. Inflation and volatility in the financial sector don't help. A lot of regional banks are really struggling right now. What's the level of distress in credit markets at the moment, Reshmi? How how worried should we be?
2: Well, the days of cheap money are over as the Fed has steadily increased interest rates, and higher interest rates are putting pressure on the cash flow for companies, especially for tech names. And this is where we're seeing quite a bit of distressed activity. You know, global default rates have now reached the highest level since the 2020 pandemic. And over the last few months, we've seen several high-profile bankruptcies, as you mentioned, you know, from banks such as Silicon Valley to Bed Bath and beyond. We're seeing a number of companies entering into negotiations with their lenders to extend the 2024 maturity wall. You know, for instance, data center operator SixTera is looking at multiple options ranging from selling assets to a capital raise to tackle heavy debt load. If they can't do that, then it's going to end up filing for bankruptcy.
1: So the companies you mentioned are in trouble. What are they doing to sort of buy themselves a bit more time here?
2: Right. This is a market where it's extremely challenging for people to make money. And what we are seeing is that some lenders, private equity owners, companies themselves, are exploiting loopholes in the credit agreements that allows for these uh, contentious debt maneuvers to take place. So in industry terms there's a termination there's a term called designation of an unrestricted subsidiary or a drop down box and that is something no one ever wants to hear but in layman terms this means that the company is moving assets from the collateral package backing lenders' loans away from their reach. So basically what it kind of means is like, let's say I agree to give a company a loan, and I believe there are five businesses in this package. All of a sudden the company says, oops, no, not so fast. We're gonna take away two businesses from that entity, and now your recovery values are going to go down and those assets have been taken away from you. So
1: let me just stop you there. The collateral package, um, unrestricted subsidiary, there's lots of quite complicated terms in there. I just want to like break it down even more. Are we saying that um, when a company borrows money, they essentially they have something that is worth something that the lenders will attach as collateral and they expect that that will remain in their reach, when you know when they're in this lending agreement, and the companies are essentially taking this collateral and putting it somewhere else.
2: Yeah, exactly. So when you know a company does a leverage buyout, you as a lender will uh, lend money to the company, and you're believing that when you do this loan, that you have this amount of assets. And now what the companies are doing are saying, not again we're going to take away some of these assets and give it to other lenders.
1: Okay, so the, the, the word drop-down, the phrase drop-down, what, what does that apply to?
2: Drop-down basically means that you are the company is moving collateral away from the reach of lenders, and they're putting it into a separate legal entity. And at that entity, they can raise financing.
1: Okay, so lenders are not only losing the collateral, but they're also kind of being exposed to the risk of the company taking on more debt at another level of the company is that
2: yeah exactly and they're kind of going to be primed which basically means that those lenders who lose those assets are being pushed down the repayment line
1: okay so what where is this happening can you give us any examples of uh, what we're seeing right now
2: yep you know for instance we uh covered a company um club corp which is uh apollo as pa- apollo is the private equity owner and club corp operates private clubs And golf courses, and the company recently informed lenders that it was moving two business entities into legal and um, into like legal subsidiaries, which basically means, or is basically a precursor that the company is going to probably uh, raise financing at that box, and those businesses have been kind of stripped away from lenders. And reason why this is so interesting is because the company was actually in negotiations with lenders to extend a, mat- a near-term maturity. That deal fell apart, and shortly after, the company created um, an unrestricted box, drop-down box, or basically moved to business says into a legal a different legal entity.
1: And is this quite common now, this drop-down transaction? Is it widespread in the industry?
2: Yeah, it's becoming common enough that we are seeing situations where the lenders were band together in a preventive move with law firms and signed cooperation agreements, which basically is telling a company, we are united, don't try to do these kind of aggressive debt maneuvers.
1: But it's not entirely new. We've seen these in the past, right?
2: Yeah, we saw it in 2017 with J. Crew, where it moved Maidwell at the time, which was its kind of crown jewel, into a drop-down box, and there's a lot of legal action that took place. Um, but and then shortly after, we saw you know PetSmart <coughs> do the same thing, where it moved to Chewy, its online pet store retailer, into a different box. And Neiman Marcus moved My Teresa again, an online retailer, into a different box. But, you know, with PetSmart and My Teresa, we actually saw those entities do, um, go public. And in these kind of more recent situations, we're not seeing those new businesses go into, like, you know, be spun off into a publicly listed company. We're actually seeing those companies, such as, like, certain Simmons, which did a deal in... 2020 um, going to chapter 11.
1: But so in the past, these these maneuvers have actually worked and they've saved companies.
2: They have. And you actually saw them being able to spin off those assets into um, a public listed company and those proceeds would then be used to pay off the lenders.
1: But in this case, because the IPO market isn't as hot we think that these won't work this time.
2: Yeah, and we're seeing, you know, Incora, which is an aerospace supplier, we're seeing, you know, we're hearing rumor, you know, we're hearing that they're having liquidity issues. Obviously, we had sort of Simmons and Envision is another company.
1: So, um the main differences then between prior use of the drop down and what we're seeing now is just the exit to the IPO,
2: is that right? Yeah, I think we saw that quite a bit in the beginning that you know, the companies would say like, look like even though we're removing these assets from you, eventually we're going to do some type of, um, we'll make it a publicly traded company and you're going to see value from this IPO.
1: So we're talking about um, something that is really not very good for the creditor, right? So how are they reacting to this other than organizing? What are they doing to be able to protect themselves in these situations?
2: They're filing lawsuits. We saw that with Mitel. We've uh, seen it with Incora that there's a lot of lawsuits coming and they're basically calling these deals as kind of sham transactions and they're not done in good faith negotiations and they're a complete manipulation of the documents that they uh, initially agreed to.
1: Have we seen any of these uh, lawsuits succeed or are they still working their way through the courts?
2: They're still working their way through the courts. So we don't have like a great amount of uh, case law. But one thing we did see in Serta Simmons bankruptcy, court is that the bankruptcy judge did kind of give a nod to the aggressive or egregious debt maneuvers.
1: Very interesting. So before we talk to Himanshu Bakshi at Bloomberg Intelligence, what's the next big story to watch on your beat, um, Reshmi? What what are we looking for next?
2: Uh, I think we're going to be seeing more cooperation agreements. That's something that we're working on for tech companies. And uh, we're definitely going to see more drop downs for Many companies. In particular, we're seeing a lot of it in the tech software space.
1: So cooperation agreements, what are they?
2: Cooperation agreements are just basically when lenders kind of band together for a united front. And you you know, you know, basically kind of have to inform your lenders if you plan to sell your uh, loan.
1: Great stuff. Reshmi Basu from Bloomberg News. Thanks so much for joining us.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: Read all of Reshmi's scoops on the Bloomberg Terminal and, of course, at Bloomberg.com. Moving on to another key part of credit markets, as I mentioned earlier, we're delighted to have on the show Himanshu Bakshi, who covers banks at Bloomberg Intelligence. What's going on with the banks, Himanshu, as we've discussed a few times already on this show? In March, there were serious issues, a regional banking crisis in the US, the downfall of Silicon Valley Bank, a niche lender in the tech sector and also to the wineries in California. Then, much more worrying, Credit Suisse imploded, one of the biggest financial institutions in the world, heavily involved in all parts of the credit markets, brought down and forced into a fire sale with UBS. Now First Republic is teetering. Is the banking crisis over in your view, Himanshu?
3: Hey, Uh, Gems. Thanks again for having me today. So is the banking crisis over? Um, I think the answer is the worst of the crisis is over. Um, But the banking system remains under pressure. And the reason I say that is because uh, inflation, even though it's easing, it still remains high, which means The Federal Reserve uh, will uh, need to continue to raise interest rates, which means that the issue we saw with um, some of the banks that failed in March was um, uh, rising losses on the investment portfolio. That will continue to increase. Um, But the change we are seeing now is that um, the focus has shifted from all banks globally to a few banks with those idiosyncratic risks. Um so even though it'll take some time for depositors investors confidence to come back I think most of the crisis is behind us
1: So you look at the AT1 market that's the riskiest form of bank debt mm-hmm. Credit Suisse wrote theirs down to zero um even though equity holders got something back mm-hmm. that was a major event for that market and we saw um you know a lot of panic and a lot of people saying that the market had uh, been killed mm-hmm. by that uh, <laughs> transaction but more recently, we saw a deal in Asia. So so the market, you know, it's not completely dead. What about in the countries that you cover?
3: So I cover Canadian and Australian banks. These are uh, among the highest rated banks in the world from mid-single A to high AA. Um, I think the market remains open for um, these highly rated institutions. Um, and we saw that in March, uh, if you looked at Australian or Canadian banks, eighty-one securities, um, they widened along with all the market, uh, all the all the other financial institutions, but they widened less than most banks globally. And so, I think markets will remain open. But one thing that I would like to highlight is, additional tier-one capital is not a requirement for banks. Uh, the optimal level the regulator um, asked banks to hold is about 1.5 percent of their risk-weighted assets. Most of the banks under my coverage already ha- are at that level or exceed that level, so they don't have an urgent need to come to market to issue 81 securities. Uh, and because these banks are so well capitalized, they don't need to issue. Because, uh, as I said, uh, the 1.5 percent 81 as a percentage of risk-weighted assets, it's not a requirement. Is is it's a optimal level, but if you have enough core equity, core capital, you don't even need to issue that much.
1: You've uh, talked a bit about extension risk in, in what you've been writing. What does that mean and, and why should we care about it?
3: So extension risk is basically when you buy uh, an 81 security uh, of a bank, you are assuming that the bank will call those security on the first call date. And um, banks under my which for example, Australia... <clears throat> Australian banks uh, in the past have always called the 81 securities on the first call date, and that's how those securities are priced. Um, We still expect Australian banks uh, to call the 81 securities on the first call date. Um, There are a couple of structural reasons why they would do that, because um, the 81 hybrids, for example, they have a mandatory uh, conversion date. Three, month, three years uh, after the first call date. So for them, it makes sense to call the 81 securities at the, at the first call date. For Canadian banks, um, they are not known uh, for calling the 81 securities on the first call date. So we don't expect them to call the 81s. Um, but Australian banks, we do think. So in terms of extension risk, uh, I see a little bit for Canadian banks, but not for Australian banks.
1: Okay. So overall, the financial institutions, where do we go from here?
3: I think, uh, as I said before, the risk has shifted uh, to a few banks with idiosyncratic risk. And what I mean by that is uh, banks with more uninsured loans, uh, what we are seeing with First Republic, where you have um, uh, interest-only mortgages on your balance sheet. So uh, the focus has shifted to uh, those kind of banks. So I think overall the risk is going down, but something to watch out uh, is... What will be the impact of the crisis we had in March on uh, the, economy, uh, the economic growth and credit growth? Um, and that's important. Why? Because um, if we see a significant um, tightening of underwriting standards uh, from here on, that will have an impact on households and businesses, which will in turn have an impact on the labor market, right? And that will put pressure on um, borrowers low in the credit spectrum. And if we have that, that will have uh, an impact on the bank's asset quality. And that's what we are watching right now. So um, I cover the big U.S. credit card issues. And what I'm watching is asset quality for um, card issues with more subprime loans.
1: Surely we're going to be running into trouble on credit cards, though, with the consumer when we tip into recession. I mean, are you not worried about that?
3: Not really, because uh, all the U.S. card issues that I cover, they have ample uh, allowance for credit losses. And what I mean by ample, um, so all the card issues have reserved, assuming that unemployment will peak at 5%. That's what our in-house Bloomberg view is. Um, even if unemployment goes uh, above 5%, we know that the Federal Reserve last year stress-tested all these card issuers at 10% peak unemployment. So banks have time to um, add more provisions to their reserves. And on top of that, they have ample capital to absorb any unexpected losses. So I don't think it's a big issue. Um, uh, uh, for. It's a big concern for credit card issuers now. Obviously, the bonds will remain sensitive uh, to a recession, but um, I think the credit profile of all the U.S. card issuers should be uh, stable.
1: Are there any that are particularly concerning to you? I mean, obviously, places like Amex that, that have sort of high net worth Customers, they're, they'll probably be okay. But the other ones that maybe you know give cards out to Banana Republic or whatever, are they, are they not going to be struggling a bit? Uh,
3: so, yeah, as you said, Amex, yes, they have a more affluent, super prime client base. So Amex should be fine. Discover is another one that I cover. Uh, again, more prime focus. Uh, but the two that I, uh, I'm looking carefully, I think the first one is Capital One because about 30% of their loan book is subprime. Uh, 50% of their auto loan book is subprime. And then the other one is Synchrony Financial, Um, about 27% of their loan book is uh, subprime. So those are the two we are watching. But these two banks also have um, higher allowance for credit losses than the other two peers I mentioned with more prime focus, and they also have higher capital. And so even though they are taking more risk, they are actually, um, when they underwrite, they underwrite to the risk. They understand what the risk is. They have higher margins. They have more capital against that risk. So uh, as I said, even though their bond spreads may remain sensitive in a downturn, overall the credit profile of even these two banks should be fine.
1: So you sound remarkably upbeat and optimistic, mm-hmm. and you know, this is a credit show, and I'm very pessimistic. And <laughs> as Reshmi was saying earlier, there's a ton of uh, things to worry about. What keeps you up at night worrying, Imanshu?
3: I think, uh, as I said before, the one thing that I'm looking at is the impact of the banking crisis uh, on um, the economy and the credit growth because... Um, As I said, the the subprime lenders that we're looking at, uh, Capital One and Synchrony I mentioned, they still have good regulatory supervision. So those are not the banks that I'm concerned about. Um, I think the risk lies more in the small non-bank financial institutions where they don't have much uh, regulatory supervision, and that's what I'm concerned about. I don't cover those companies, but I think the risk is over there in my view.
1: Thanks very much, Shimanchu Bakshi of Bloomberg Intelligence.
3: Thank you, James.
1: You can see all of his analysis on the Bloomberg Terminal. There's a ton of stuff going on in that sector, so do check it out. And thanks again to Reshmi Basu from Bloomberg News.
2: Thanks so much.
1: Read all of her scoops on the Terminal and at Bloomberg.com. I'm James Crumbie. It's been a pleasure having you. See you next week on The Credit Edge.